you could tell that something was going to happen. And it got completely dark and completely quiet. And what I remember is just bang. There was automatic gunfire from only a few rows in front of me and then from the back of the plane and then from the front of the plane because he changed his magazine. He's just letting rip with this Kalashnikov into the passengers. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. So you have a very unique story, very interesting story, which happened quite a few years ago. Do you want to uh, go back to the beginning of the story when you were getting on the plane? Well, really, I have to go slightly further back than that. This story starts with my brother, uh, who was a mountaineer uh, and a doctor, Dr. Peter Thixton, and he died up a mountain in northern Pakistan in 1983. He's buried in a crevasse at 24,000 feet. He died of altitude sickness. And after he died, uh, I really wanted to go and see the place. Um, and although you know, that was a sort of daydream of mine, it, it was very unlikely to happen. He was a mountaineer and I'm not a mountaineer. Uh, but in early 1986, some of the medical students from where he trained as a doctor uh, said they were going to have an expedition to the area in his honour. And they invited me to go as a sort of, mainly I think as a mascot. Um, his his name was on the expedition t-shirt. It was the Pete Thexton Memorial Expedition. And we went to the Baltoro Glacier, which leads up to K2 and Broad Peak, one of the, the, the huge mountains, which Broad Peak is the mountain where he died. Um, and so I had been up in the mountains for nearly two months doing things I regarded as incredibly dangerous. Uh, some of them were probably quite objectively dangerous. Um, but I got back to the edge of civilization in northern Pakistan, and there was a letter waiting for me saying, we're looking forward to being back at work next Tuesday. Now, I you know, got my calendar out and worked out that next Tuesday was when our plane got home. Uh, and I needed very little excuse to try to reorganize my flight. I was desperate to get home, desperate to have a good meal, see my family. And so I spent um, an afternoon going around all the available uh, airline offices in Karachi, uh, in uh, Rawalpindi in northern Pakistan, and I got myself a ticket um, on Pan Am Flight 73 the next morning, uh, said goodbye to my friends, uh, you know, and they all thought I'm incredibly lucky, not least because I'd actually blown an enormous amount of money on um, a business class ticket. Uh, you know, this is the first, uh, I think it was probably another 25 years before I bought a business class ticket. And um, I left them behind, went to Karachi uh, on an internal flight, got up at three o'clock in the morning to go and catch this plane. Um, and then the story began, you know, I mean, that, that was the, um, that, that, that's, that's the important background. I mean, why I was there, I've always waited for this to be made into a proper Hollywood film. And if it was a Hollywood film, you'd get that in the sort of 30 second cameo about, you know, each of the characters that they want you to care about, why they were there, where are they going? Um, but at the airport, um, I, uh, it was a normal, normal morning, you know, I mean, I, I had uh, too much luggage. Um, I was wearing my expedition gear. I had a lot of expedition stuff on me. I looked very unusual in the business class. I was wearing a red duvet jacket and a battered Panama hat. And I had a couple of cine cameras around my neck. Um, but nevertheless, they let me on the plane. 
and I went up the front steps for the first time in my life, you know, to, to, to turn to the left, you're in first class, turn to the right on this jumbo jet, you're in business class. The economy class passengers going up the second staircase. And I'd, I'd only just sort of got to my seat and put a big hand luggage bag in the seat with my hands in it, trying to get a book out and getting ready to enjoy the flight. Um, when I heard a noise in the second doorway and, and I looked up and there was a man struggling with a flight attendant. Um, and this was a man, he he was dressed as a Pakistani. He had sort of Pakistani civilian white baggy cotton shirt on, baggy cotton trousers, um, little round glasses, moustache. And he had his arm round the flight attendant's neck. She was a little woman and she had the, the intercom pressed to her ear. And he had his arm round her neck and they were sort of struggling and he had a pistol in, in this hand. And I had what I think is probably a typical reaction of a civilian, which was just to stare at them. Uh, you know, I didn't sort of duck or run away or go to help or, you know, I just, it's a man with a gun. Extraordinary. Um, I didn't have very much time to think about it because a moment later there was a noise in the front door where I'd just come in and I looked round and there was a man in uniform. Again, typical civilian reaction. I thought this man is on my side. This is, you know, this is one of the guards from the bottom of the steps. Um, we've got a bloody great rifle, um, which was in fact a Kalashnikov. Not that I knew what a Kalashnikov looked like in those days. Um, and he was shouting to the flight attendant, close the door. And I tried to tell myself a comfortable story. I thought maybe this is some sort of Pakistani riot. It's a Pakistani civilian in the second doorway. And that man, from his face and his complexion, he could have been, he could have come from anywhere from North Africa to Bangladesh. And I would much rather he was Pakistani than he was Arab. Um, so I was telling myself that this is a Pakistani problem. Pakistani security are going to deal with it. You know, and they're closing the door because the problem is outside the plane, which is also comfortable. None of this was true, of course. Well, I was just telling myself that this was not really my problem. Because a moment later, this guy was saying, this is a hijack and put your hands up. Uh, and I mean, one of the, at this moment, you know, one of the most important things of the day is he said to the flight attendant, where is the captain? What is up these stairs? Now, um, people don't fly on jumbo jets so much anymore, but uh, in those days, a jumbo jet was a sort of fairly well-known thing and, and it always has a staircase. Now, in this particular one, there's a little spiral staircase just between the two front doors. And if you'd ever flown on a jumbo jet, you would know that the pilot is up them. Um, you know, that's where the cockpit is. And these guys didn't know that. You know, they'd sort of planned their terrorist attack on this plane, but they didn't know where the pilot sits, which is extraordinary. Um, and that gave the pilot a little chance to escape, um, and he, which is what he did. Um, the pilot decided he needed to immobilize the plane. I think it was, well, I thought immediately, as soon as I realized what must have happened, that, that that was the right decision. We were 
put on the ground in what was basically a friendly country. We weren't going to fly anywhere else. Um, and he got a certain amount of criticism for abandoning the passengers. Uh, but I think he did that in, in good faith in, in, in the interests of all of us. So that was how it began. Um, and we were, we were sitting there with our hands up. And then uh, when the leader had established that the pilot wasn't there, you know, things have changed. He was hoping to just take off and go somewhere else. So he came back down the stairs and he said, he said, everybody up, everybody back. So I got moved back into economy class within five minutes of boarding my first ever business class flight. And because it the sort of chaos at the beginning, um, there was a, there were some spare seats. There was, I think, a busload of economy class passengers who was, who never made it onto the plane. Lucky them. Um, and so I found a spare aisle seat a few rows back. Looking, looking behind me, I could see the uh, the wing exit, um, the door. I sat down, hands in the air, uh, and I could just lean out very slightly in my seat and I could see a terrorist, a man in a security guard's uniform with a pistol standing by by the second door in the gap between business and economy. Um, and then we sat and we waited and it was very strange. Um, one of the strangest things about it was that there was that, that little music that they they used to play. I don't think they do anymore, but they used to play on, on the plane before you uh, an intercontinental flight. Um, and it's on an endless loop. And the, the pilot didn't turn it off when he went. And so we were sitting there with our hands in the air and the hiss of the air conditioning and the, the entertainer going on in the background. Da, 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 All day, all day. Very peculiar. Um, and then we had... Uh, this very bizarre announcement they got the flight attendants to make announcements over the public address and the first one i remember it very clearly it was it was a female voice and i immediately knew this must be a flight attendant she was very polite very calm and she said ladies and gentlemen the group responsible wish to apologize for the inconvenience caused their argument is not with you they do not wish to hurt anyone but if you make any sudden movement, you will be shot. And that was, well, in a way, that was reassuring, strangely. I mean, it, 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 obviously, we were all very frightened. But somehow, the way that she put it, you could actually believe from that, OK, I'll sit here. I won't make any sudden movements. And maybe I won't be shot. Um, because... Back in 1986, you know, we, we hadn't had 9-11. Plane hijackings happened in the 1980s. And I was sitting there thinking, yeah, plane hijackings happened and somebody will probably die. But you never have a plane hijacking where everybody dies. You know, I mean, if I do what I'm told and I try and make myself as inconspicuous as possible, I should go home. Um, and... That was what I was telling myself to be, um, to try desperately to um, just see something positive about this. Uh, it was difficult. Um, and 
one of the things that I mean, one of the things that I always try and emphasize is um, at this point, you know, they weren't physically violent to us, but they made us sit with our hands in the air for half an hour, uh, an hour, old people, young people, children, you know, we all sat with our hands in the air. And that's really, really hard, you know. Um, and I think that people, some people got off the plane and they were sort of, you know, in pieces. They, 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 they couldn't quite get to grips with how difficult it had been. For some people, it would almost be better if they had been physically maltreated because then they could, you know, admit to themselves, yes, that was really hard. Um, but if all you have to do is sit with your hands in the air, you know, while you're incredibly frightened, uh, while people walk up and down with guns, um, it doesn't seem like that should be so hard, but it is. You know? um, I mean, eventually they came down and said, ladies and gentlemen, you can um, lower your hands onto your head, uh, but make no sudden movements. Ladies and gentlemen, you can lower your hands into your lap, but make no sudden movements. And then there were other announcements. Ladies and gentlemen, does anybody know how to operate the cockpit radio? Uh, now that's, you know, that, that was my first indication the pilot had gone. Uh, and I felt that's very good. Something's gone wrong with their plan and we're probably not going anywhere. But nothing much happened for oh, maybe a couple of hours, you know, just these announcements and um, the man standing in the doorway and everybody very calm. I think the thing, I mean, one of the things about it is this sort of plane that flew from Mumbai in southern India to uh, Karachi in Pakistan. It was on its way to um, Frankfurt and then New York. And it was mainly full of Indians and Pakistanis. Um, and they knew that these people were not Pakistani. They knew that this was Arab. Um, and I think they mainly felt that it was the Westerners' problem. And in fact, I mean, I, I was looking at two people next to me who I, I thought they look American to me. Um, and I was thinking this is their problem. You know, the, the Americans are our number one uh, in, in, in the list and they'll be in front of me. And it was a very brutal thing to think. But everybody, I think, was looking around and trying to find somebody who was more miserable than them. Uh, and these two people, they, they just looked sick. Um, I think they couldn't see anybody who looked more likely to be um, in front. And being head of the line is, is not good. So that went on for a while. And then um, a thing, the first thing, dramatic thing that happened after that was um, I, I was unaware of it. I was sitting there, sitting in my aisle seat, feeling very safe. And apparently the leader of the terrorists came down the aisle and just took somebody out of a seat. Um, it was a man who happened to be an American green card holder. Um, but he was Southern Indian. He looked Indian. He, did, he wasn't the person that you would grab as the nearest American. He took him back to the front door and negotiated with a man out on the uh, out on the tarmac. And after about half an hour, he just shot him and, and threw him out of the plane. Uh, and this was cold blooded, brutal. Not in the heat of the moment after taking over the plane. Um, it, 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 it still, well, it, it still saddens and shocks me after all this time. But I was unaware of it. Um, so when the next announcement came, 
which was, ladies and gentlemen, will Mr. Micah, uh, no, ladies and gentlemen, please hold up your passports. That's, that's, that's what they said. Ladies and gentlemen, please hold up your passports and they will be collected. And so I, I thought, oh, well, British passport, I don't, I don't really want to hand that in. But I was so under control. I said, you know, I needed to do what I was told to be a good boy and, and not be, um, uh, open myself to them saying, oh, you're, you're hiding your passport. So I took it out and held it up and somebody took it out of my hand and handed it to a flight attendant who was coming down the plane. And then there was an announcement, ladies and gentlemen, if your passport is in the overhead locker, uh, you don't need to get out of your seat, you know, leave it where it is. And these two people just sort of groaned with relief that they didn't have to hand in their American passports. Um, and I felt a little uncomfortable about that, but I thought it's a Pan Am plane. Surely there will be lots of Americans on here. And what I didn't realize is this, the flight attendant who was Indian. It was a, a wholly Indian crew who'd, who'd only flown a few times before. They'd been recruited the previous year by Pan Am in Mumbai to fly their planes from India to Frankfurt. And she had, with incredible bravery, decided that she wouldn't give him an American. She was sure that if he, if she gave him an American, then they would die. And she'd just seen this man shot. Um, so he, she, what she did was she just discarded the passports that were handed to her by white Americans. Because, I mean, to add to that bravery, she had the cleverness to think, if the, actually, if there's no American passports at all, he's not, he's going to realize what I've done. So she put in the bag American passports with brown faces and Indian and Pakistani names and discarded the white ones. And he, she thought that she could persuade him that these people were Indians and Pakistanis, really, uh, and not his enemy. And so what we, you know, we'd sort of got to this point that she went back and tipped them all out and he, she had to sort out the Americans into a pile and, and there were no white Americans in that pile. So the, the white uniformed middle-aged men who were the flight crew, they'd gone. Um, the people in uniform were all Indians, um, so they weren't the enemy. And now the passengers, you know, they were obviously mostly Indians and Pakistanis, and even the American passport holders were Indians and Pakistanis, and they, they, they couldn't sort of find the enemy. Um, so unfortunately, the next announcement was, ladies and gentlemen, will Mr. Michael John please come to the front of the plane? And I had a minute or two thinking that that is my, that's my name, um, Michael John Thexton. Um, it has to be my passport they picked, and I couldn't understand why. You know, was, um, and I thought thought of my brother. I thought of the fact that my brother's name was on my T-shirt that I was wearing. Um, is there something? No, no, they're going to shoot me, and I just couldn't believe it. Um, and I thought for a moment, well, I could just sit here. You no. Know, um, but they said, well, Michael John Thexton, please come to the front of the plane. I thought, now they're looking for me. You know, they're, they're, they're going to find me. Um, so I felt I had to stand up and walk forward, uh, presented myself to the terrorist at the second door, went through, and there was the leader who'd now taken his shirt off, and he 
had this Kalashnikov hanging around his neck on a crepe bandage with two magazines taped together with sticky tape, four flight attendants sitting in the floor doors behind the, uh, four seats behind the front door. And he got my passport in his hand. And he, he said, you're Michael John Thexton? I said, yes. He said, where are you from? And it's almost as if he's checking that the right person has come forward. I said, I'm from London. He said, are you a soldier? And I have a clean cut picture in my, I was 27 years old. I, I, I could have been a soldier according to my passport photo. And I said, no, I'm not a soldier. I'm a teacher. Now I was telling a friend of this a week later and he said, he said, you really just can't bear to admit to anybody that you're a chartered accountant. Um, but yeah, that's, I thought teacher was a sort of very street credible thing that would, uh, that would go down well. Um, and he asked me what the things hanging around my neck were. I said they were cine cameras and they got taken off and put aside. And then he looked me in the eye and he said, have you got a gun? And I burst out laughing. It was such a ridiculous question. Um, I said, you've got the guns around here. And he said, Neil here. Now, I knew what was happening. The four flight attendants had seen it happen. I, did, I thought I was the first, but, uh, but I thought he was just going to shoot me. And I try, I said, please don't hurt me. My brother has died in the mountains and uh, my parents have no one else. And he simply waved at me as if to say, I'm, I'm busy uh, and Neil here. And he stood one of the flight attendants in, uh, they had the door open on a sort of crack of daylight. He stood one of the flight attendants in that crack of daylight, daylight with, the, um, with a megaphone and spoke to a man under the plane and said, tell him if any, if any US troops come near the plane, I will kill one body immediately. That was what I was to him, one body. That's uh, you know trading stock. Um, but the man under the plane said, there's somebody on board who can operate the cockpit radio. Talk to us on the cockpit radio. We'll take everyone from around the plane. No need to hurt anyone. Um, he actually asked, he said, but we've asked for somebody to operate the cockpit radio. Why has this man not identified himself? And I'm kneeling on the floor thinking, well, I think I know why. Um, but they made a specific announcement. Will the member of the Pan Am ground crew on board <clears throat> please come forward? And a man came up the aisle, a workman in overalls, and he went upstairs. And then I could hear hear them talking on the on the radio. And I was left with a different terrorist guarding me just beside this pile of passports and the four flight attendants and the door was shut. <clears throat> I suppose that was about nine o'clock in the morning and I spent 12 hours at the front of the plane waiting for them to make a demand that would not be met. Um, and then they would shoot me. Uh, and it's a very strange, very, very strange feeling. I mean, it, um, it's quite hard. A lot of people have moments where they think they're going to die. You know, something terrifying happens and ah, but then you're beyond it. Um, to just wait there for 12 hours was very peculiar. Um, and I tried to start with, I just felt sick and terrified. But I think the thing that sort of got me through that first bit was the fact that I felt more sorry for my parents than I felt sorry for myself. I, I, I just felt so sad that my parents had, you know, said goodbye to my brother three years before 
and and they had not told me don't go you know um they had driven me to the airport because uh, they knew it was important to me um and so they um they would go through this again and i just felt so sad about this and i i said i tried to whisper to one of the flight attendants please tell my family that i love them very much and she said no don't, don't worry it'll be all right um and i felt better for that that i could sort of get a message somehow to them um and I mean, there's, there's a famous film of, of 9-11 of course flight 93 where where this is sort of the key moment that uh, the terrorists tell people to phone their loved ones and say goodbye and i've never been able to watch that film because to me you know that would just break me up because i i would i know that that's what you would want to do and it would be so awful but it would be more awful just to to, to disappear um and then I started to go round and say goodbye to other people. I didn't pass any more messages to the flight attendant, but I said goodbye in my mind to my friends. And I got round to a couple of people on the expedition I hadn't really got on with. And I thought, I thought there's an old saying. I think it's, I think it's biblical. I think don't let the sun go down on your anger. Um, and I thought, I, I don't want to die angry with anybody and uh, i tried to put it to rest in my mind and i mean the strange thing was i i then i thought about the terrorists and i thought i don't want to die frightened of them i don't want to die angry with them i'm, I'm quite sure they're going to shoot me but i suppose it's probably part of my upbringing sunday school there's a certain sort of comic that i read when i was a a small child and uh, you know films of the second world war with british officers with stiff upper lip i thought that if the leader came down the stairs and said i'm going to shoot you now i was going to say all right uh, you know make a clean job of it uh, i don't agree with what you're doing but um i forgive you um i, I and after that he didn't frighten me anymore you know, the thing that he was going to do, he, he was going to do. I couldn't do anything about that. But he couldn't change me. You know, I was uh, I was still going to be me. Um, and that was important to me in that moment. And through the rest of the day, very little happened. I had I had a little conversation with a couple of the terrorists. I mean, the there was this young guy who was just aggressive and unpleasant and i was frightened of him because he looked like he could just shoot me in the leg and that would that would hurt um and he was always angry and he said you like thodger i said I, what he said you like Margaret thodger and i said no no i hate her she's a horrible woman um you know, I, he knew nothing about Margaret thodger um but he'd been told she's a bad woman um and he thought that i'm <laughs> it's another piece of luck you know that that um they expected the British passport holder to come forward looking like a businessman, I suppose. And I was looking like a refugee. I'd, I'd been up in the mountains for two months. Uh, I'd lost 35 pounds in weight, I, a long beard. And um, they, they still couldn't find the enemy uh, when I came forward. Um, and then at one point, the leader sat opposite me, the 
flight attendants were serving coffee and sandwiches to people and it was just me and the leader and he, he looked at me and said are you married I said no I'm not married I have a girlfriend said and he said I'm sorry I don't like this I don't like this fighting and killing I would like to go out dancing go out drinking go out with women but the Americans and Israelis have stolen my country and without my country these things are no good and this I mean, this was when I find, you know, finally realized, yes, he, he is Palestinian, Palestinian terrorist. And I have to say that I felt just sad. It was so sad. I mean, I have no idea if he believed that or not. You know, if he, um, if he honestly believed that this would do some good, because it obviously wouldn't. You know, he was doing a horrible, terrible thing that would just make things worse. And, but he believed that it would do some good. And it, I just felt this was awful, I, which it was. Um, and as the day went on, um, nothing much happened. And they made negotiations. They were trying to get a flight crew. Nobody was going to go and fly that plane to anywhere else. We found out many years later that they intended to do a 9-11, that, that that was their plan. They wanted to fly the plane over Israel and crash it into something. And, um, you know, we were all extremely fortunate that the pilots escaped. But in the evening, the ground power unit that powers all the electrics on the ground um, ran out of juice or it, it broke down. It's not supposed to chug away for 15 hours on the ground. So. Um, the plane went into darkness. Uh, it moved over onto its battery power and they put me back with the others. I was woke, woken up. I was half asleep in that doorway. Somebody kicked my feet and said, go back to the, um, the main cabin. I went back into the main cabin. I found a seat, sat in it, got as low as I could. And I thought, I stand a chance. This is extraordinary. Um, but... Um, you could tell that something was going to happen and it got completely dark and completely quiet and what i remember is just bang and i thought is that a hand grenade i'd seen one carrying a hand grenade um surely a hand grenade would be louder than that but then there was automatic gunfire from only a few rows in front of me and then from the back of the plane and then from the front of the plane because he changed his magazine he's just letting rip with this kalashnikov into the passengers and then and then it, what I remember is it was quiet and I, I'm told it was not quiet. People were screaming and shouting and crying and um, but it had been so loud and then it was not loud. And I could look over to the other side of the plane. I could see in the darkness a different color of darkness and it was door shaped and somebody had opened the starboard wing exit. And I felt for the man next to me and I said, come on, we've got to go. It's it's going to burn. And he went to the starboard wing exit and I went to the port wing exit just behind me. Um, got out on the wing in the dark, no lights, no shoot. Um, and so I had this idea, you know, I couldn't see what, what it was like. I thought I'll just slide off the back of the wing. I'll hang on by my fingertips and drop what I thought were the few remaining feet to the ground. And I one of the few people who could say there's nothing to hang on to on the back of a jumbo jet wing. I sort of went off it at some speed and it's a very, very long way down, um, like jumping off the roof of a house. 
but here, I mean, again, I was lucky. I'd lost 35 pounds. I was very light. I was very fit. I was wearing mountaineering boots. There were people who jumped off the wings, I mean, taken their shoes off to be comfortable on the plane. And uh, I landed in a heap on the tarmac, scratched my elbow, ran away, thinking, this is the dream. You know, I'm going to wake up in a minute and I'll be back on that plane. I, I cannot see how I have got to here. This is unbelievable. And that was, you know, that was the day. The strange, you know, the strange thing is we're talking about this day, 37 and a bit years later. Um, uh, it, it's, I, I have spent a great deal of my life talking about this, um, rather more than the 16 hours I spent on that plane. This podcast is sponsored by Iceberg. Iceberg is an SEO company that markets you directly to your potential customers. They do this by putting you right on top of the Google results. So when someone searches for your industry, your company appears above all other companies. Now, most SEO companies tie you into a lengthy contract and it's completely overpriced. But Iceberg doesn't. Iceberg has no contract and they'll beat any genuine quote you get by 20%. So if you want to use Iceberg, click the link in the description. Now back to the podcast. It's very interesting that, but I think, I mean, the way you've said it, it sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like a novel that someone's written, which, yeah. I mean, obviously it was a very crazy experience. So I want to ask you how you feel about it, what, what, what your feelings are, but not back then, but now, because in the reports, I think 20 people died and 100 people were injured. People died and 100 people, uh, over 100 people were injured. Yes, it was, I mean, it was brutal. The thing was that I ran away from the plane amazed to have survived and I, I found some other people we hid uh, in a an outbuilding on the airport um, and I think that I, I don't know how long we were in that outbuilding but when I when when the army came and sort of did a sweep of the perimeter and found us and took us back to the terminal building somehow I think that already they'd taken away quite a lot of the wounded I, somehow I didn't sort of see that at that moment um, and it took me a long time to realize how bloody it had been, how how appalling. You know, I mean, obviously it was frightening. And if I just sort of stopped and thought about it, yeah, there was gunfire, there were grenades. But I was so amazed to have survived. Um, but the next day, um, you know, I was, I'd gone to one of the hotels in Karachi and uh, talking to other people who were, survived and we were all sort of comparing notes and I just thought if I could ever do anything to help somebody out of such a situation then I must do it without you know without hesitation um when I got home to my surprise I had an opportunity that I was asked to go to the foreign office and you know talk to some professionals so there were somebody from the metropolitan police somebody from the department of transport you know somebody from the Ministry of Defence, all people with different professional governmental interests in this sort of thing to try to stop it happening or to do something about it if it did happen. And there was a man there from the Metropolitan Police hostage negotiators course. So not just plane hijacks, but, you know, if some somebody takes his wife hostage and locks themselves in their house with a knife, then somebody who has been on the hostage negotiators course will go and stand outside with a megaphone and try to sort it out. Um, and I spent 23 years 
four times a year talking to that course because they need somebody to make it real for them. You know, it's they do their exercises and they they they, they practice, um, but all of them. They all said, you know, they would hear the story told by me and one other person who was on the plane. And they said, oh, my God, you know, this is we've been we've been practicing. And now this has really made us realize, you know, that there are hostages. There are real people in there. And, I, and we've got to get them out. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I hope that that is something that has been useful. Um, and I guess what I feel about it. Um, is that it gave me the opportunity to do that, which is useful. Um, but also, it gave me a heck of a sense of proportion that there is very, very little in this life that is that important um, in comparison to surviving something like that. Um, I mean, I always say that the only thing, and um, the, the pe people get off the plane um, and feel terrible about the fact that, you know, I, I'm, I'm in pieces. I've let myself down. And really, the only thing that um, you need to do is go home. You know, you need to survive and go home to your loved ones. The only thing you couldn't live with. And I, so I did think about it. I'm kneeling at the front of the plane. I thought, he wants an American. There's a big pile of passports here. No American passports in it. I know where some Americans are. I thought, no, no, I would rather be shot than live with the thought that I gave him someone else. You know, that's, I mean, it's, that, that's, that's nice to know, um, a good thing to know. But it does mean that, you know, every day that I have is a bonus. Um, and, you know, I still feel miserable on, on some days, um, but I can get it back by just thinking I shouldn't be here. You know, I shouldn't have a wife and children that I'd not met in 1986. Let me quickly interrupt you to remind you to subscribe so we can get bigger and better guests on and have more conversations like this one. Now, back to the podcast. You mentioned that uh, when you had the, when the gunman, uh, when, when you saw the terrorists, the first thought wasn't about yourself. It was more about your parents and, okay, they lost, some, they lost someone else. Uh, one of the sons, now they're going to they're gonna lose another son being you you did you what was that the first thought was there nothing about your girlfriend or nothing about yourself or it was just about your parents i think i think that was the first thought yes i mean i think the thing was you see i had spent the previous two months thinking a lot about my brother um and about what had happened three years before that was the point of the expedition i had gone to the foot of the mountain and said goodbye to him and so i guess that's probably why that was in the forefront of my mind. Um, but I mean, the, 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 the reason that this is, this is still um, relevant now, uh, or one reason it's still relevant, so that the, the, the leaders, all the terrorists were, were captured on the site and put in prison in Pakistan. And the leader was released on parole uh, officially, you know, I mean, it's the end of it, uh, the end of a life sentence is not the end of life necessarily. He was released on parole in September two thousand and one, you know, just after nine eleven, um, and it seems fairly clear that the Pakistani government and the American government did a deal. 
And so the Pakistanis deported him to somewhere where the FBI could pick him up. Um, and he was put on trial in Washington, D.C. And there was a sentencing hearing in 2004 where they basically it was a plea bargain that, that he would plead guilty to something like 94 counts of attempted murder, um, 20 counts of murder. Well, no, I think I think the thing was that they were prosecuting him for what he did to the Americans, uh, 94 Americans on the plane. Um, and possibly one or two Americans who actually died. Um, and he would plead guilty to that and they would give him 160 years uh, in jail. And his benefit from the plea bargain was that they wouldn't press for the death penalty. And so I went to that trial and I met some of the people. I met the flight attendant who put me in front of the queue, realized what an amazing woman she is, um, that it wasn't just, you know, a thing that you do once in your life. If you're that amazing, you're just that amazing. Uh, it's just most people don't get the opportunity to show it. Um, and I saw him convicted and, uh, and sent down. And afterwards, because I'd learned more about the event, I, I, I wrote a book about it. And somebody read this book and they said, oh, well, you know, perhaps we should make a program about this and you could go and interview him in jail. And I thought, no, that's a terrible idea. I really don't want to do that. But the, the pitch was that in the courtroom, he had expressed regret. You know, he'd said, I now realize this was wrong. Now, if you could get a Muslim terrorist to say, this was a bad thing, I now realize, well, that might you know, if it stopped one person somewhere doing the same thing, then that would be good. And so on that basis, I said, OK, I'd be up for that. Um, and now it didn't happen. We, uh, but, I, but my publisher wrote him a letter and he replied and he said, yes, he'd be up for that. Um, and I mean, it's probably helpful that in, in, the, in the sentencing hearing, there were probably 25 people spoke and many of them wanted him dead. And I didn't want him dead. Um, and I didn't want him dead partly because I had sort of forgiven him on the day and I, I didn't somehow feel I could generate the same hatred of him afterwards. I'd, I'd forgiven him um, for what he did to me. I couldn't forgive him for what he did to the others. The other, you know, the 20 dead, perfectly understandable. The other, lots of other people couldn't forgive him at all. Um, but it was mainly that I thought if they kill him, then there'll just be more. You know, if they if they execute him, then that is a recruiting cry for terrorists everywhere. So I said, I don't think they should have the death penalty. Um, and so he sort of he, he sort of remembered that. Um, but the governor of the prison said, no, I'm not having a film crew here. That's absolutely not going to happen. But I wrote him two or three letters uh, around about that time. Um, and he wrote back and it, they're very strange letters. You know, he's just, uh, he, he, he watches football, you know, he supported Chelsea. Um, you know, what, a, what a strange thing to write to this man about or to hear his view on that. And he sits in a prison cell and thinks about what he did. Um, and you know, then, then I, you know, didn't write any more letters. Um, and hadn't really thought about 
him for a very long time. Um, but at the beginning of 2020, at the beginning of the first lockdown, I got an email saying, um, I'm thinking um, we're going to make a, a documentary about this um, event. Uh, this was one of these sort of, I, I thought, is this one of these bizarre lockdown dreams that people had? You know, nothing else is happening. So we just dreamed things. Um, why would anybody make a program about this now? But it transpired that that was what was happening. So there, there was a documentary called Hijacked, which went out in April of um, this year uh, on Sky Documentaries. Um, and I was interviewed and they had some reconstruction and they also went and visited the flight attendants and the FBI agents and all sorts of people, the pilot. Um, and it, you know, it was a big, a big production. But very close to the end of the filming of this thing, the director came to see me and he said, he said, I don't want to give the terrorist a voice in this, but um, I have been in touch with him because I thought I might learn something, learn something. And he said, he has agreed to talk to you if you would talk to him. He has said that if you want to ask him questions, you can ask him questions. And I thought, I, th I, well, I, thought, I thought very long and hard about this. I, I, I don't want this man in my kitchen. You know, I definitely don't want the other people on the plane to hear me having a friendly conversation with this man. He, he, he's a murderer. You know? But there were questions I wanted to ask him, you know, and I thought, I'm not going to get the chance again. So I agreed. And um, so last May, um, in, well, May before last now, a year and a half ago, um, it was an afternoon with me standing in my kitchen with a phone in my hand, waiting for him to ring me um, because this has to be sort of arranged that way around. And, you know, it's very strange to hear his voice on the telephone. And I said, look, I, you know, Saeed, um, Ben here says that you will answer questions if I, and he said, yes, anything you like. And so I said, I asked him the first, the first and most important question, a strange question to ask. I said, why did you put me back with the others? If you were going to shoot people at that moment, I was there, you know, why didn't you just shoot me? And he said, he said, it was because of what you said about your brother. He said, I, I remember your brother had died or something. He said, it touched my heart. And I thought, just sit aside and take your chance. And in all the years, you know, 36 years, that had never occurred to me. I had thought that they had put me back because I had been dignified or they put me back because I was, I'd lost all this weight and I looked like a refugee and wasn't a rich person or whatever. But it never occurred to me that he was even listening when I said something about my brother and that he should remember it 12 hours later and remember it 36 years later. I mean, it's just completely extraordinary. And so, you know, that was worth the phone call for me to hear that. Um, I mean, I also asked him, why did you open fire? And the important, I mean, this was important because they had always denied that they did. Um, immediately afterwards, the Pakistani government had said that their commandos had stormed the plane and had rescued the passengers. And actually the commandos arrived 20 minutes after the shooting because they'd been practicing. It was quite a proper thing. They were practicing somewhere else and they were going to storm the plane later. But they, 
because they had said that the Pakistani commandos stormed the plane, it gave the terrorists the opportunity to say, well, we didn't shoot anybody. It was these commandos storming the plane. They shot people. So I said, why did you open fire? And he said, we just panicked. And it was the first sort of honest answer on that subject that I think he'd ever given. Uh, and again, that was important to me, that he would actually say, it was us. We did it. Um, that was that was something. You mentioned about letters, which sounds really interesting, having that correspondence with the with, uh, with those people, the terrorists. Are those letters public? Um, they are not. No, um, I don't think that they are available anywhere. I, I did have. Um, I did put in my book a, t a letter that I had with one of the other terrorists while he was still in a Pakistani jail. Because, I mean, when when Zaid, the leader, was deported in September 2001, immediately picked up by the Americans, the others in their Pakistani jail said, well, actually, we'd, we'd rather just stay here. You know, we, we'd rather not be released on parole because it's obvious the only place we're going to end up is an American jail. Um, they have quietly been released since because Pakistan is no longer quite as friendly with America. So that they are probably now somewhere in the Middle East, um, and we don't really know. Um, but um, no, I mean, you know, there's no particular reason I didn't uh, didn't publish those letters. It was just that I had already written the book, um, and uh, I mean, there is this very strange thing when I first wrote to him, um, I. I thought he'll think this is a bit odd. You know, this is the man who I was going to shoot. Why, why does he want to talk to me? And so I just explained, I want to ask you these questions. Um, and he took great offense at that, at that time in, in, in 2006, this was. Um, and I, I suppose I just hadn't allowed for the fact that he'd spent 18 years in a jail cell, whereas I'd spent 18 years sort of talking about this subject and, um, and we would look at it in a very different way. And he, he sort of felt that I should have been a bit more polite and, you know, asked after his health or whatever. And I've got this wonderful bit in the letter that he wrote to my publisher to say, well, I, you know, I hate this man. He's so rude. He, he, he simply um, asked me these questions without any, any sort of introduction. It says, it says, I have been in, interrogated for hours by FBI, by Pakistanis, by Mossad. You know, they were all more polite than him. <laughs> and so I, I, I think I should have a, a T-shirt that says "Not as polite as Mossad." Um, I think that would that would go down well. Because it, yeah. it sounds really interesting. Those letters, uh, something like that. I mean, even even what you just said now, that, that all of that interaction sounds really unique and interesting. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the, the, the sad fact it it probably isn't as interesting as you think. You know, because because he's got. His, his life is to watch the television, you know, um, really, uh, or certainly was then. Um, and so really we're sort of talking about football. That's, um, and it, that, that's the extraordinary thing. We, don't, we didn't have a deep conversation about the meaning of life. Um, uh, it was less, you know, because I didn't want to ask you. He'd been offended when I'd asked him the question, so I didn't really want to, want to do that again. Um, that's why I was actually surprised on the phone call that he answered the questions. You know, I, I, I thought that he would 
just stonewall again or, or possibly even hang up. Um, but I, I guess he's had another 18 years um, in jail you know, and he was he was willing this time to answer. Like a true Brit, all you spoke about was football. <laughs> Hilarious. No, absolutely. Yes, I know. I know. Yeah, it was uh, as if we were in the pub. You know. Um, it was you mentioned on the uh, that you spoke to one of the terrorists that they could have killed you uh, at that moment yeah. when you were kneeling at the, at the front. Did you think you were going to die? Yeah, no, I was convinced of it. Yeah, convinced one hundred percent. How how does that feel to know that to like one hundred percent certain you're going to die? Very well. It's almost more strange to cope with the fact the next day that you didn't. You know, that I, it is a very strange thing to think tomorrow's not going to happen, you know, to so I, this this is all I've got. I'm waiting for waiting for that moment. And I mean, one of the one of the things was during that time um, at the front of the plane, there were periods where I was not guarded, where the four flight attendants were off serving coffee. The leader was upstairs and the aggressive one had gone somewhere else. It's just me on the floor looking at the door. And, you know, you think, okay, I haven't, we didn't get to the point in the, in the flight where you read the thing and see how to open the door. But I could see how you open that door. And I was thinking, if I open the door, what then happens? You know, and I was 100% sure that they would shoot me later. And I was pretty sure that if I opened that door, they'd shoot me now. You know, but but the certainty would be less. You know, maybe I would open that door and jump out, and and I mean, actually, it would have been a bad decision because the front door of a, a jumbo jet is is a lot higher up than the wing. <laughs> you know, if I had jumped out of that door without a chute, then I would have just broke my legs on the tarmac, and then they would have shot me straight away. Um, but you know, the the fact that I was so sure they would shoot me later, but I didn't want to make them shoot me now. I never got close to opening that door. That's a strange thing. Can't justify it except the fact that it was obviously the right decision. So this is a bit more of a personal question, but from that, did you get PTSD from it? Um, I, I think I was very lucky because, um, because of my um, central role, you know, everybody wanted to hear my story um, and you know here you are hearing my story after all this time um, and so I got to talk not to a psychiatrist uh, and an analyst or whatever but to a bunch of policemen on a regular basis um, it's one of the reasons why I, I think the story is still honest you know this this is what happened uh, it's it's not grown in the telling not that it needs to grow in the telling but this is how it happened uh, and I can remember it very clearly because I kept repeating it. Um, but the, the people, I think, who have more trouble uh, processing something, th these were the people who, who got home and, and the journalists would say, well, you know, what was it like? Uh, uh, um, you know, how did it begin? Uh, and then how did it end? And you tell them and then you think, but that wasn't what it was like. What it was like was 12 hours of being terrified with your hands in the air. And I haven't told you that at all. You know, you're not interested in that. 
Whereas the hostage negotiators were very interested in that. You know, they, they really wanted to know. And so I was really able to tell them. And I feel sure that that very much helped me. Um, so, I, yes, I mean, I, I, I spent, I probably thought about it every day for a couple of years. It would always be sort of going through my mind, uh, playing, not in, you know, not in sort of fear and trembling, but just this happened, that happened. Um, and then that sort of passed away. And I don't, and I think long term, I rather more feel positive about things because, because I survived. Well, yeah, it's a really interesting story. Thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you for making it to the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to see more conversations like this and so that we can get bigger and better guests on. Thank you.